Good morning. Good morning to everybody watching online too. Grace and peace is what Jesus brought for all of us. And that really is the bottom line for the first Sunday as we talk about Christ and him helping us deal with our addictions. I want to pull back the curtain just a little bit because I want you to know the uh, context from which I speak. Alcohol and addiction has been a, a demon that's plagued my ancestors and my family. Uh, I can only go back as far as my grandparents, but my, I don't know, I never got to meet my paternal grandfather. He, he, his job in Houston was to invest in the stock market, and when it crashed, my father was just a baby. He never recovered mentally as his dad didn't. He wasn't close to Jesus. He drank a lot. My dad was 11 when his father took his own life. That grandfather's brother died as a, in alcoholism living alone in a house. They found beer cans a foot deep in his home when they, when they found him. My, my maternal grandfather, there are stories, he died of cancer at age 53, but there are stories about grandma having to get friends and maybe sometimes the pastor to go get him from the bar. Alcohol is always a familiar friend and guest in our home. I grew up in the Dallas area. There was an ill-fated attempt to try to help Texans deal with alcoholism by changing the drinking age to 18 when I turned 17. I made full use of that freedom. I learned how to two-step and play a mean game of pool and some other things I won't tell you about. Some I'm not too proud of. That familiar friend became a big problem for my mother. She went into treatment and ultimately died of cirrhosis. Christian woman, dear saint, great mom. Really hard to watch as the the skin turns yellow and the ammonia fog sets in and the doctor says the the liver's not going to recover. My own brother went through treatment twice, 25 years apart. He sits in a nursing home because he blew out his own mind with a stroke in a drinking binge a year and a half ago in August. I mean, it was August, about a year and a half ago. He has lost all short-term memory. He's also lost all his old bitterness and angst. And so he knows Jesus and he's happy and content and he doesn't have all the old problems he used to have. He's just stuck where he is. That's the context from which I speak. And it's partly the reason I pull back that curtain. I certainly don't want your pity. I'm your pastor. You've seen me live my life. You know that there's many joys and strengths. But I want you to know also that there are many hurts that addiction has caused. And I know my family is not unique. And sometimes it's the best kept secret. And it's a badly kept one that we struggle with addiction in a family or in a person's life that we love or in our own life. That's why I'm super happy that our brave young pastor stepped into my office and said, I want to do a series on addiction. Frankly, in 28 years of ministry, I've never had the guts to do that. Partly because I want to talk about Jesus, mostly. Uh, But 
we can talk about Jesus and how he helps us through times like this. It's something the church doesn't need to be silent on. And I've certainly proclaimed Jesus and the Bible as an answer, but I, I want to ask this question today since I showed you the context from which I speak. Does Jesus have something to say to the addict that's specifically for him or her? Someone who has trouble saying no to temptations, whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, or some compulsive behavior. doesn't really matter. It's all part of the problems that we have to somehow gratify desires in order to deal with life instead of reach for God. Does he have something to say? Or is Jesus over in an ivory tower somewhere in religion that can't relate with everyday troubles in life? You know that's the lie. That's the trouble, the struggle that we hear so often. Do you know the name Bill Wilson? What about this? Bill's story. You ever heard that term? Bill's story is Bill Wilson's story who is the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. His story is like 16, 18 pages long at the beginning of the Alcoholic Anonymous Bible. It's called the Big Book. And Bill tells his story, wrote it very well. He, he founded the Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935. He died at the age of 75 in 1971. That story is if you've ever struggled with addiction or a family member that has and you've gotten involved in Al-Anon, you have read Bill's story. And you'll hear, when you read that story, you'll hear him say, I had a friend who came to see me when I was in the throes of my drinking binge who said he found God at church and that I needed God. And that was, my, that was the answer for my, my addiction. And then he'll tell you in his story that he doesn't believe that Jesus Christ and the message of the church that proclaims the message of Jesus Christ is really this kernel of truth or the story that he needed, although his friend said it was. And so he launched on a, on a journey of a God of his own understanding. And then he built the 12 steps around basic principles of honesty and inventory and apology and dealing with your stuff and reaching out to God as he understood him as a higher power that could help him because he realized he was powerless to fix himself. Some of you have been involved in a 12-step program. You're familiar with what I'm saying. Some have not, but you've heard about it. The reason I want to bring it up at all today is certainly that, that organization, if you could call it that, he would never want us to call it that, but that group certainly blessed many people and will continue to. doesn't need to be down-talked. But you need to understand something. The, the, one of the spiritual things that the whole idea of Alcoholics Anonymous has done to the church is to say, we've got you, you don't have the secret to spirituality for an alcoholic because this is the secret over here. You are in a religion that's around a proclamation of a person that is different than the all-encompassing good news 
of Alcoholics Anonymous. So there is a spiritual challenge going. And I'm saying that because that's the other context in which I live. Let me explain. How did I find this out? It was, I, I went through my own little awakening when I was 19. And I, got, I had been backsliding and I got back to church and I had a new pastor and I had a new uh, teaching from the Word of God. But I had grown up there, gone through confirmation, all the Sunday school confirmation, all the things that, sh- that, that the average Lutheran church kid goes through. Stood up and confessed my faith in Christ in eighth grade in the spring, 1973. Then I backslid, then I had a new preacher, and then I got back into the Word as a young adult, and I voraciously was eating it to deal with my own demons and finding great strength. And so I volunteered to be an elder. What an oxymoron. I was 22 years old. <laughs> I was an elder in the church. They sent me to go see members who quit coming. There was this one inactive member that was from my 13-member confirmation class. Her name was Connie. Hadn't seen her since ninth grade. Found her, went to her apartment, and she opened her heart to me, and she brought out, she clung to it like a Bible, the big book I told you about. And she told me about Bill's story, and she told me about her alcoholism throughout, because we were only 19 years old, but throughout from ninth grade till till then, and she talked about her, her sins, and her life was a mess, and I was involved then in a church small group Bible study, regular gathering, and was begging her to come back to church and come to our small group, and she said, you people won't understand. You don't get it. The church failed me. Jesus failed me. Sound like Bill's story a little bit. And so here's the question. Here's the angst for a Christian and for a pastor. Does Jesus have the answer to set us free from our addictions or not? Is it really over there in a different group? Or is it in the church? Is it in Jesus? It's in Jesus. And in fact, the truth is, whatever you, if you look at the 12 steps, whatever works is actually because it piggybacks and mimics all the things that are taught in Christ, except Christ as the Redeemer. Everything else is scriptural and biblical, but not Christ the Redeemer. You can't go there. So let's look at Jesus. If he has something to say, we're, the, we're God's church. We're in a sermon series. We're talking about the proclamation of the good news of God, Jesus Christ, for us who are addicted to sin, for families like mine. And I would venture families like yours too. And we're going to see Jesus talking to a man who didn't get Jesus and didn't get it about a woman who gets Jesus and is from a family like mine. And like Connie's, the woman I just told you about. In Jewish society, Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home because the Pharisee wants to get to know him in order to really discredit him. He's not really wanting to follow Jesus. And a woman who's already following Jesus but's from a very checkered background horns her way into Simon the man's house. This is a, a Pharisee. We get, we're given his name Simon. This is not Simon Peter. It's a different Simon. 
And Jesus has something to say. And the crux of the matter that he says to Simon is, do you see this woman? Do you see her for what she really is? Simon did not. But I want to say to Connie and all of you and Bill, do you see this Jesus who's talking to this woman and talking to us? So let's, let's get into the story. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, like a coffee table there on the floor, kind of reclining on his side or, or cross-legged. A woman in that town, remember, small town, rural kind of, everybody knows everybody. Pharisee kind of knows of her, knows her. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. What do you think a woman, a sinful woman, normally used an alabaster jar of perfume for? I probably don't need to tell you, do I? As she stood behind Jesus at his feet, remember they're spread out, he's kind of on one elbow probably, she began to wet his feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. She's in another man's house. She came in uninvited. She's fawning all over Jesus and touching him in a way that would give most of us the willies. <laughs> and she's touching his nasty, dirty feet that have been in the sandals on the road. She wiped them with her hair and she kissed them. I mean, I, you'd be hard-pressed to get me to touch your feet, much less kiss them. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. There's something dramatic going on in this woman's heart and life. That is no mistake, is it? Even for their day, right? Or their culture, if they were more touchy-feely, and I don't think they necessarily were. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, maybe even without moving his lips or making sounds, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I've ministered to several different women that were prostitutes at different times. Buried, buried two of them and presided at their funeral. One, one a, a, a third was a not only a prostitute, but had become a Satanist high priestess here in Austin. She, wore, she came to church a few times. She wore long, long sweaters, turtlenecks, long sleeve sweaters, and always, never, never shorts or a dress, always down to her ankles. She said, Pastor, I've, I've got tattoos from my ankles to my wrists to the, my neck. Your people would not accept me. Really? Sat right there a couple times. Died of cancer. A redeemed woman. Child of God. But man, it would curl the hair on the back of your neck to hear the confessions she gave. All the way back to escapades with a youth pastor at a Baptist church. And everything in between. Sorted. Um... Why do I say that? Because the feelings you get 
when you realize just how bad it can be for a person and they participate in it, are the feelings that Simon had, although his are more judgmental probably than yours, as he's looking at her. Does he not know that this woman is trash? She's trashed herself. She's trashed a few marriages along the way. And she's, she's from our hometown. I mean, she's, she's one of those folks we just, our wives tell us, don't you dare go near her. Does he not know? She's, she's fawning over his feet and she's a mess. What does Jesus know? Jesus knows her heart. Everybody thinks they know her heart, but they actually only know the outer track record. They don't know her heart, but Jesus knows her heart. Now, he may only know her heart because he knows all things, but I venture that the reason she's there doing what she's doing is they've had a talk or two, don't you think? Now, he may know her heart just because he knows everything, but she knows that he knows her heart because she has been with that Jesus, but not the way you would mean been with somebody if you were talking about her sinful life. If you want to know what that conversation may have gone like, we don't know. You can find another sinful woman that Jesus had a talk with. Remember? John chapter 4, the woman at the well. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with is not your husband. I mean, both of those women, this one and that one, were without boundaries. This one's proving it by coming into Simon's house and touching Jesus all over his feet and kissing them, right? They're not, they're not boundary people. Neither was the woman at the well. How did Jesus talk to her? Relentless pursuit of confession. Remember? Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. I can see you are a prophet. And when she left that conversation, you know what she said to the people in the town? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Actually, she told everything she ever did because he proved to her he knew it and she needed to get it off her chest. And he forgave that woman. Conversation that Jesus has had with this woman washing his feet is is a conversation of honesty making her honest. And if you look at back at Bill's story, he'll tell you, you've got to be honest with yourself and with God and with everybody about your, your, your drinking and your sins. Because he mimics what Jesus does. Jesus made her honest, this woman. He had made her honest. She knew that. He had gotten out of her in a safe conversation what other people could not or she would not let them because she didn't trust them. And truth be told, the reason many people won't confess their sins to get help from someone is because they're afraid you will be a Simon. They don't want to share it with you because they don't trust you with it. Not even that you wouldn't share it with somebody else, but that you would actually give them the grace that they crave. Well, they stuff it, deny it, and blame and excuse. But Jesus, he was, the, he was forgiveness personified. He was the Lord that saves, right? The one who would die for it. So he eked it out of this woman, and she had confessed it all. Remember what I said about the Satanist high priestess? 
She stopped herself short of telling me things that she was trying to get off of her chest because she could see I, I couldn't handle anymore. It's not Jesus. But we forgave it all. And I said, you don't need to share anymore with me unless you need to, but if you want to know what his answer is for the worst things, and they're worse than what you've told me, it's the same answer I've already given you, is that you're forgiven. She clung to that like this woman. This woman had confessed everything to Jesus, right down to the last sin she could think of, and it was all forgiven. And the reason she broke the boundaries this time was not to exploit a man for money and attention. It was to tell Jesus, thank you. Admittedly, something she rarely ever had done in her life. In that town, in front of Simon. So you might even give him a pass that he's so judgmental. But now she's not doing what Simon thinks. She's not taking advantage of Jesus. As he, as he feels the shivers go up his legs, as she rubs his feet and tears fall and the perfume fills the room. She's just adoring him thankfully for the mercy of God that he's poured over her. So Jesus needs to teach Simon this. He needs to teach you and me this too. So this is what he says. Verse 40. Simon... I have something to tell you, Jesus answered him. Tell me, teacher, he said. Remember, Simon doesn't know Jesus just read his thoughts. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? You know, Simon knows it's a leading question. The teacher is in control, and it hurts for him to get his lips to, and tongue to say it. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And here's that famous line. Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into this house and you did not give me any water for my feet. A normal social custom. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. In other words, Jesus says, this is kind of bizarre. It's over the top. You did not give me a kiss. You know, left cheek, right cheek. Eastern men would do that to say, well, you're welcome to my house. It would be like our handshake, not our elbow bump. That's something else. But like our handshake, right? You did not give me a kiss. This woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet almost see Jesus say it that way. You did not put oil on my head, something you often did for a guest, much like getting them a nice drink of water with a lemon in it. But she has poured perfume on my feet. An alabaster flask, remember later in another story, worth a year's wages. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Simon, what you're looking at is not someone who's exploiting another human being. What you're looking at is gratitude. He is grateful that all of her sins are forgiven. Here is an addict addicted to probably their alcohol, sex, men's attention, men in general, 
And she is completely free from the guilt and shame that the devil used to keep a person from dealing with it. Now she is free. See, what the devil does is tempt you into sin and then hound you with how, what a bad person, what a gross person you are, what an idiot, what a herder of others, what a major failure you are, and keeps you from ever dealing with it because you have so much guilt and shame. And the numbing power of blame and denial and other th- repression, they don't, they don't fix it. So you reach for a bottle or drugs or something else. Jesus freed her from all that. He found it in a person who told her he was her redeemer. Now, we don't know how much he told her, but we do know that he was prone to tell people, especially individuals, what was coming. There was another anointing, remember? It was two weeks before he died by Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Alabaster, years worth of wages. And when she anointed him, he said she anointed him for his what? His burial. Mary, that Mary was thankful as much as this woman because Mary listened to Jesus that he was going to die for those sins. So here is the Christ, dear Bill, Bill Wilson of Bill's story. God does not accept you as you are that would violate his justice. He forgives you for what you are because of the death of his son and the payment that he made. God went way beyond. So when you're trying to make a God of your own making to make it more palatable that more people would come out of the shadows, just remember, you got to eventually get them to Jesus if they're really going to know God's over-the-top Love in the person of the Christ. Because that living person always has the scars, is always the one who died for you, and will continually tell you that message every time you fail. Even if, like my mother, after treatment, still failed and died from the sin. But she didn't die in it. I could, my siblings could tell you stories, but they're not preaching today. I am. I've told you this story before, but you, are not, you don't all come to church every week, and I don't always say it in the same way. So I'm going to tell it to you again. I got to keep my mom for two months, and then my last, the other sibling got her for the last two months that she went to heaven. So a couple months before she passed, here in Round Rock at my house, very hard to able to get around in the ammonia fog as her liver failed. My mother's a very honest person. She give her the time. We sat at the table, and she it was hard for her to concentrate to talk because of the ammonia. But she said, "My biggest regret, very paused because of the ammonia, is that I did this to myself and to all of you kids." I'm going to die from this, and I did it myself, and I knew better. Hear the confession, the deep sorrow, responsibility, honesty. (laughs) I've been mad at her for this thing. 
hoping she wouldn't come here tipsy and embarrass me. Wishing she'd just stay home if that's what she was going to do. Angry that my kids wouldn't get to know her longer because she's going to die early. Do I dump all that on her? No. One of those moments where you just say, God, take over. Say something through me. I didn't, didn't even plan. I just said it. I said, Mom, we're all going to die because of our sin. We all did it to ourselves. <laughs> I'm, you're, we're going to die because we sin. The soul that sins is the one that will die. Death is a result of sin. So who am I to blame an alcoholic family member for shortening their life when I shorten mine by being a sinner? Mom, you know the solution. You're already forgiven. God forgives you. I forgive you. We all love you. We're all forgiven. We're going to make the best of every minute that we have. And we're going to rejoice in our salvation. And we're going to see each other again. And She had tears in her eyes and a faith-filled heart. And she said, I understand. I know that. I believe that. And I sighed of relief. Is that so much more important than her track record? It's what's in her heart. You see this woman? She's got a heart of gratitude, Jesus said to Simon, because she knows she's been forgiven much. Simon, you have no gratitude for me because you don't think you need to be forgiven much. And now you know why church people often don't have joy. They don't have joy at church because it didn't go quite the way they wanted to be entertained. They don't have joy in their life because they can't put it all together. They don't know that they are a sinner like this woman who's been completely redeemed by the death of their Savior. They've lost touch. And they're the people that Bill Wilson, when he wrote his story, said, If that's what they have, I don't want it. Here's the question. Are you Simon? Or are you the woman? Any given day, I guess I could be one or the other, right? That's why we're here today. Because we need to be brought back home. And Jesus is so gracious, that's what he does. And he said some words to her that look like he's sending her away, but he's actually really saying even more than that. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that he even forgives sins? We would say that's what was missing in that AA program, but it's not missing here in the church. We've got the one that forgives sins. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What now for her? Your faith has saved you. Your faith in me as your redeemer has kept you safe. The word saved here in its fullest meaning means to be rescued and then kept safe. Your faith has saved you. Go in that peace that your faith is bringing and now live a new way in the peace of knowing that by grace, not by steps or performance, by grace, you are accepted by God and that you have God in your life and that you have his people in your life to depend on. 
Now, months later, when Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended, the early church was only 120 people until Pentecost, which is 10 days after the ascension. I wonder, you think she was in the 120? Maybe. I think that kind of looks like a group, doesn't it? Like maybe like an AA group? Or is it the church is a group? If she's acting the way Jesus would, she is a group that you get to be a part of when your faith has saved you. In the book of Acts, after Peter preached his great sermon, and we're in the third, third sermon in the series, we're going to talk about authentic community. So I'm about to wrap this up because save the rest for that. But in the, thir- in, the, in the third sermon, we'll talk about this. But in, on Pentecost, when he preached, 3,000 people became believers, and it says they wouldn't even go home. Instead, they stayed longer in Jerusalem, and they were in the apostles' teachings. And they, it says they had glad and sincere hearts. That's a neat picture for peace. Go in peace, he said to the woman. And they hung out with the people that had peace like they did. And they learned the apostles' teachings. They learned God's big book and how the gospel helped them. They learned true prayer is crying out to God without an anxious heart, but with thanksgiving, giving your request to God like 24 hours a day, which is a slogan from the other program. They learned to practice their faith with the Lord's Supper that gives the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins to everybody who comes. Even if two family members are up here who've had a squabble, they are both forgiven and they are brought back together through the grace of Christ. If they believe it, your faith has saved you. Their baptism, she would learn what baptism was, and that it was a, a new identity, which is next week's sermon. So I won't say that any much about that either. Remember Connie? I was wanting her to come back to the group, to the church. I didn't want to invalidate her experience or get her to quit going to her AA meetings, but I wanted her to have the benefit of the Christ in her her reformation. I never really acted on it, but I always thought... What if the church had groups that were just for the healing of the addict? Lots of people in church work have asked that question for many years. And then California, a group finally acted on it. And they created Celebrate Recovery. You've heard of it? And it, the, the, the premise is, it's all the strength of an AA program, but it has Christ as the God who redeems us, saves us, and walks with us, and forgives us of our sins, and teaches us to live in grace-filled community. And there are steps, and they're good. Celebrate recovery. Did you know we have our own at Holy Word? Not many take advantage of it, but one of the reasons for the series is so that you would learn the meaning and the value of it. So if you or somebody you know needs it, you would take advantage of it. It's called Hope and healing. Pastor Herring and Cynthia Scoggins are in charge of it. There's there's a section for family of those who are struggling and those who actually are struggling themselves with some kind of demon of addiction. It's all anonymous. 
in your own church. If I were going to Connie today, and I do go to Connie's today, I'd say, did you know we have this at church that's just for you and it's people that are training themselves in the same kind of thing that you've been doing? There's no room for the church to be Simon, nor do we want to be. Let's be that woman, adoring Jesus for the mercy and grace and freedom that he's given us from all of our sins. And let's proclaim that grace to everyone that has the same struggles that we have. Amen.